Esther, we want to look at our message, The Queen Who Saved Her People. We've been in a series of messages in the Old Testament that are very national in their implication. Whether it was Josiah, the man who rescued his nation by a godly revival and put his finger upon the pause button so that they could have a season of reprieve while he was the leader before judgment came to that nation. We also saw those who rebuilt a nation, first the temple with Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and then also we see Nehemiah helping rebuild the defenses of the nation of Israel and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But now we look at a queen during that epic time where the Jewish people were dispersed all over the known world at that time around the Mediterranean region. And a woman by the name of Esther is put into a key role as the queen. She is taken from obscurity. Her family was POWs, prisoners of war that had been exiled by Nebuchadnezzar away from their homeland. She's an orphan. Her mom and dad passed away in the process of all that. Here's a girl, this life has been devastated. She's been taken away from her home. She's lost her mom and dad. She is nobody, but she has one thing going on that is outward and one thing that is going on that is inward. On the outside, she is drop dead gorgeous, Miss Universe type of looks. And on the inside, she is filled with a humility and a wisdom. And a work of God is done through this woman to save her people from a genocide throughout 127 provinces. She's the one. We live in epic times where one person, one man, one woman can stand up and make such a huge difference as we've seen over the last couple of months as we've talked about the things in which we have been able to experience victory as we stand up and speak up empowered by the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's open to Esther chapter 1. Hopefully you made your way there. Let's stand and read the first nine verses of this incredible story about the queen who saved her people. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, they partied for six months. And when these days were completed, that wasn't enough, the 180 days, six months, the king made a feast lasting seven days, just a mere week. He had another party of all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, for great from great, excuse me, to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, each one unique, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law. The drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. The king had a big party, then he had a small party. Well, his wife's having a party too. Everybody's having a party. In verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Father, thank you for your word. May it be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, Lord, nourishment for our soul. Build us up now, Lord, we pray. Strengthen us as we look at this incredible story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You may be seated. As we look at this incredible passage of scripture, we're gonna see the king's wealth, the king's wife, 
and also the king's women in this first section. Each one of these chapters in this book is like a scene from a movie, if you will. Think of the extravagance. First of all, he wants to display his wealth as we just read there. It tells us in verse four, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. This place was in Shushan, the citadel. This is the modern day in the country of Iran, of Shush. It's an actual city today. But in that area was the center of the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. Now, in this celebration, it's his third year. He's a young king. He's only uh, three years into his election cycle. He's got a year till re-election. No, he's a king. He, there's, no, uh, there's no election. He's going to reign for about 20 years, according to history. History has a lot to say about this Ahasuerus, who ruled over the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. He had a vast, vast kingdom. But in this celebration, and then another seven-day celebration, and then Queen Vashti was celebrating. All right. Now, when you want to show off, some people have people over to their home because they love the people. A lot of people have people to their home because they want to show off. They want to show off their home. They want to show off their splendor. They want to show off their nice champagne uh, and their beautiful cutlery, as they say in Great Britain. But the reality is, is that all of this celebration now comes to a screeching halt between a husband and a wife, a king and a queen's conflict, but it's very public. You see, the king had had just a bit too much wine to drink. I'm sure you've never seen somebody in that condition where they begin to slur a bit and they love everyone. I just love you. You're so amazing. And the way that it goes when you've had just a little too much to drink, it tells us in verse 10, on the seventh day, that's after the shorter feast of seven days, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was lit. He commanded seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. He wants to show off his gorgeous wife. She is drop dead, good looking, he wants her to come in with her crown, and the people will go, ooh, ah, look at Queen Vashti. Now, in this moment, he's already shown off his wealth. Now he wants to show off his wife, the queen. But this is where it comes to a screeching halt in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Now, it says there were seven eunuchs that went with this request. Obviously, within the Old Testament narrative, and especially books like this, and with a queen involved, you're going to hear that a lot. A eunuch is obviously a male that has been castrated. They were castrated in that old school fashion because if they were men that were going to work for the king, but they were be going to be interacting with his wife or his harem, for obviously reasons, he wanted them not to be able to perform the sexual act, right? That, that takes care of things quite quickly. Let's just cut some body parts off and you're going to be a good little boy and just do what you're told. It takes chastity to a new level. So he has seven eunuchs that go with this message and she says no. Now, he's furious and his anger burned within him. He is now so upset because his pride has been wounded publicly. He's made a grandiose statement of every, you know, to the, the crowd that his wife is coming, she's going to be wearing the crown. Now, there are certain inferences through the years that commentators had may, have made. Why would Queen Vashti refuse the king? He's drunk, she doesn't want to do that. Now, she knows her husband. She knows what royalty is like. She knows she cannot be unaware that there are severe consequences in their culture because a woman did not have the rights that she has today. And the queen is asked. Now, some 
surmise that he wanted something more than just her to come with her royal crown, but to maybe be dressed in a way that was immodest or uncomfortable for her to be paraded around in front of everybody, be that as it may, she says no. To her own credit, maybe she even counted the cost. You know, this may cost me my place in the palace. I might lose my crown. I might lose my position as the queen of the greatest empire in the world. Whatever the reason, she says no. And because his pride is wounded, he is so angry. He is so upset. He is filled with wrath. And when we make decisions based in anger, pride, anger, and wrath, oftentimes a lot of people get hurt. Tells us in James 1, 19 and 20, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't you wish back you could take some actions or some words that you've done when you were really upset? You wish you could just take them back. Once those words escape within the fight in a marriage, they're out there. You can apologize for them. You can say that you didn't mean them. You can try to clean them up. You can try to sanitize them. You can say what I really meant. But now those words are out there. And they're like feathers in the wind. It's hard, hard to gather them back up, isn't it? I was counseling a couple one time, true story. And uh, the man said, well, Pastor Rick, I don't know what to do. Every time we get in a fight, she pulls out her notebook and she has kept a list of everything I've done wrong for the last 12 years of marriage. I thought he was speaking, you know, metaphorically. And uh, he said, no, it's a literal notebook underneath her mattress. And every time I do something wrong, she goes to the mattress, she gets it out, she writes it down, and she's, it's in the book. <clears throat> and... Uh, I was somewhat stunned by that, and uh, I looked at her, and I addressed her by name, and I'd known this couple for some time. They both loved the Lord. And I said, is this true? She said, well, yes, Pastor, but in my defense, he has like a photo, photographic memory. He never forgets a thing. And in an argument, I always feel unarmed. So the notebook is my armor to be able to bring all the stuff up, because in the heat of the moment, I can't remember a single thing that he's done wrong. And he's got a mental list. So we worked on step one throw the notebook away, right? <laughs> Counseling 101. Let's, let's not just bury the hatchet with the handle uh, sticking out of the ground to be able to grab it every time you go by. Well, but the thing that turns us around, on one hand, we're looking at the king's wealth and the king's wife, and now they've just had a breakdown within the relationship. But realize this, God knows in his sovereignty, people make decisions and God does not over... Uh, doesn't force them into the decisions of their wrath or their anger or various things, but God can use it as it says in Psalm 76.10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you with the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. This is in Psalms where the Lord is saying that now King Ahasuerus' wrath God's going to use that supernaturally. He's going to overrule, very much like the wrath of Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit, sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Potiphar's uh, uh, house as a slave. And then the wrath of the wife of Potiphar, because she tried to seduce him, and he said no, and ran out of the house. She ripped his robe right off his body, trying to throw him into bed, and he ran out. And now she's filled with wrath, and she lies to Potiphar, so he ends up in prison, all of the wrath of man that was in, it was all getting, God used it all. They meant it for evil. God used it for good and brought him into the palace to be the prime minister of Egypt. Do you realize that God can overrule? The boss gets mad at you and fires you. But in hindsight, five years later, if you would have never been in this great position you are now unless God used the wrath of that guy to get you out. Realize that all things do work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign. Therefore, you don't have to get down into the weeds of the heartache and the bitterness and the resentment because God can't overrule. If you're a child of God, God's working. You can, you can bank on it. You can count on it. Now, there's now going to be a position open <laughs> for the queen. Right? Basically, the queen's going to get fired right now. She's going to lose her crown. They're going to take her banner, Miss Universe, away. And they're going to give it to the next beauty contestant that comes along, which is 
Esther. Now in verse 13, it says, the king said to the wise men who understood the times, what shall we do with Queen Vashti? Now he didn't make any decisions without talking to these guys. And one of them, Mimikin, in verse 16, answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. So Mimukin says what Queen Vashti did is now going to be a national scandal, and when husbands ask their wives to do anything in the 127 provinces around the world, they're all going to say, no. Queen Vashti did it, and we're not doing it. It's the first, you know, the real women's lib scare that these patriarchal society has, and they're not, they're not putting up with it. They're, they're terrified of it. Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great, meaning the empire, how big it is, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. So they were really concerned <laughs> about the marital bliss throughout the kingdom. And so they want to make a difference in this by firing Queen Vashti, letting the word get out. But the reality is, I mean, are people really getting their cues from the queen, king and queen about marriage? I mean, are, are they really? Are, are we watching the presidents of the United States of America, their marriages and going, you know, that's what we're going to do in our home. Right? Do, do I want a marriage like Bill and Hillary Clinton? Even our uh, beloved President Trump, when the whole, you know, porn star thing came out and it was in the press conferences after that, you, poor Donald was trying to reach over and grab Melania's hand and she <laughs> wouldn't let him. You know, it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a big scandal, right? It's like, am I getting my marriage tips from Washington, D.C.? Probably not. And so I think they're overreaching, being a little concerned. But nonetheless, this was an ancient culture. This is what's going on. And Ephesians 5.33 does give us really two great encouragements. The, the chapter is one of the most extensive about marriage, but it sums it up at the end. You husbands and you wives, let each one of you, meaning the men, love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. He boils it down at the end of the chapter, an incredible chapter, Say, hey, guys, love your wives. And ladies, respect your husbands. And that's just good advice. If you want a marriage to work, when husbands start being harsh and unloving towards their wives or wives start being disrespectful to their husbands, everything breaks down. And I tell young couples, do you want this thing to work or not? That's the bottom line. Well, I think and I learned this. And then they go on and on about our, all the cultural stuff. I said, Bottom line, as a wife, you want your husband to love you. As a husband, you want respect. Men and women are looking for different things in the relationship. I want to be respected. My wife wants to be loved. Now, you can say, well, that's such a male and female gender role conclusion. It absolutely is, and I'm unashamed of it. The scriptures declare it, and I've tried it for 35 years, and it's worked. So, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But we're not out of the woods yet. This week I need to love my wife and I would like some respect. So if we can keep going down that road, we're going to be okay. They were wanting to guard the respect. But now this opens up the door, right? Here's these small humans, even in a big kingdom, making all their decisions, making a mess. A king when he's drunk makes an awkward uh, request of his wife that she feels like she'll be publicly embarrassed at. She says no. The men said, you know, take away her crown. But God's working, right? And there's a danger coming that there's a new queen that needs to be in the right place, that can do the right thing. And more importantly, she has to be connected to the right people to make the request she's going to make. So the women. Now, the king gets a suggestion from his wise men, verse 1 of chapter 2. 
After these things, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women, woman who pleases the king be uh, queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Well, I'm sure it did please the king, right? They're going to have a national beauty contest. There's going to be officials in every single province, 127 provinces, just like we have, you know, the beauty contest of 50 states, and the Miss America pageant, they're going to, in this case, it's compulsory if an official, as they scout, they put the word out into all the communities and their counties and their states, if you will, their provinces, every beautiful, eligible virgin in this province will be taken to the capital and have spa treatments for 12 months to be beautiful because the, per, the Persians invented spa treatments, just so that you know. And they have records of perfumes and incredible elaborate bridal preparations and plucking of the eyebrows and, they, and polishing and, you know, all the stuff that girls do. And <laughs> through all of that, these beauty preparations, when they go in night after night, every night of the week, one of them will be chosen to go into the king, the king spends the night with them, he's intimate with them, if she pleases him, she doesn't please him, she goes, if she doesn't please him, she goes to the second house, as we'll see in a moment, the second house is his ginormous harem, and he, he may never have anything to do with her again, but she has had sex with him one time, and now, because she's going to be a concubine, which is a sexual slave, a female sexual slave, a concubine, and not the wife or the queen. So he's looking for the queen. These are the interviews, one night in the bedroom. This is very real life, right? Now, how would you like somebody to come take your beautiful daughter by force to go be treated like this? Not pleasant. I think I would be grabbing my daughter and fleeing for the mountains or wherever I could because I have a beautiful daughter. She's got gorgeous model good looks, and she's... An incredible, wise, sweet girl. And that's what they were looking for, at least on the outside, not on the inside. And now enter the story. The first, the family, Esther's family, then Esther's face and figure, Esther's favor. In verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So these are, these are POWs. They had been taken, their family had been captured, they had been drugged to a foreign land. And verse 7, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther's Hebrew name, which means myrtle. That is Esther, her Persian name, which means star, and she's truly the star of this show. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father or mother. Her mother and father had died. She was an orphan, and she's being raised by her, um, her cousin, it appears, because it says her, her dad was Mordecai's uncle. So it's her cousin that is raising her, and he takes her in as his own. Think about a heartbreak that a girl like this would have. Your mom and dad are gone. You're being raised by a cousin. You're away from your homeland. You're in a foreign world. You have that stigma that you're from a different place. And the family history is, it's really a lot of brokenness. And I think that sometimes you hear these stories of Bible characters and you think that they didn't put one foot in front of the other. You don't think that they put their pants on one leg at a time. Somehow you don't think that they have feelings and emotions and heartbreak and the things that they've carried with them from the baggage of their past. They're humans. They're like you and me. Here you are tonight and maybe you just have this brokenness and your family's all busted up and you have felt unloved growing up and you either can grow up and put your heart fixed on the Lord and be filled with faith and the adoption that God has put in your heart 
where you can cry by the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, and live a fruitful life. Or you can sit here and be bitter and resentful and dwell upon that and have a chip on your shoulder and live a subpar life the rest of your life. It's your choice. You see, everybody has the right over their own soul to make that choice. And the person outside of them cannot make it for you. Nobody can make it for you. People can encourage you in it, but they can't make it for you. Now we see Esther's attraction, her beauty in verse 7. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. That's the New King James. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now the NIV translates this better. It says, Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful in her face. When the Bible talks about certain people, it will, if it uses two terms of attraction, even in Joseph, who was a man, which is very rare, it says that he was handsome in form, his physique, he had chiseled like body, looks like he's ripped, been working out at Gold's Gym, and he's handsome, so he's got it all. He's got, you know, the Hollywood good looks, he's got a chiseled physique, and when... <laughs> The ladies looked at him. They were very attractive. They're like, wow, look at him. One day I was walking in this mall, and I have children that were at this age at the time, and I saw these young girls. There was just a little pack of them. It was a holiday, so they weren't in school in the middle of the day. There's like six of them, and they were all 12 to 14 years of age, and they were giddy, and they were having fun, and they were just being girls, and, and I got a kick out of them because they reminded me of my daughter, seeing my daughter with her friends. And then all of a sudden, there's this kid, and he started walking next to me. So I was, I, I got this whole, whole, whole vision. And this kid starts walking next to me. I mean, he's like six, six foot, 17, and I mean, he is handsome. And I just looked at him and said, man, what a good-looking kid, boy. And so I noticed as him and I got close to the girls who were giggling and just throwing this little, you know, uh, junior high party for themselves. As soon as they saw him, they all just got silent. And they all just stopped and stared at him as he walked by. So as I saw this happening, I kind of slowed up and just let him get ahead of me and looked around. And then I wanted to see the girls' response after. Uh, there was no confusion that they were looking at me. <laughs> Only him, <laughs> because I was once again old enough to be their father. And I looked at them, and the girls were silent for a long time as they watched him. And then they went, ow! Oh! And they bit their hands and they squealed like they were just... It was the most hilarious thing to watch. And this kid was so uh, oblivious. This boy, he had no, you know, he was in his own little world. The Bible is not very generous with terminology of attraction, the appearance of a face and a physical figure. But Esther was beautiful in her face and form or figure. Now, I know sometimes in Christian circles, because we know that we look at the, the story of Proverbs 31 woman, that there's an incredible quality of character and, and there's, there's a beauty that's inside. And sometimes I see people dismissing the, the physical package that character comes in. And it's just a reality that the Bible observes. It's something that is spoken as a matter of fact, that people can be attractive, that people have appearance that others would look at. And in this case... Can we just agree that there's beautiful girls coming from all over the kingdom for this beauty contest, and without her outward appearance and her physical form, she's not going to be in the beauty contest. That's what got her there. Now, her character is going to take her the rest of the way home to be used by God. In verse 8, it says, So it was when the king's command and decree were heard... And when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now Esther's favor. We start seeing the inside of her shine. Now the young woman pleased him. His interaction with her was pleasant. And she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidens were provided for her. She has her own posse and entourage given to her, for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. These maidservants would be there to do her nails, to do her hair, to do these body treatments. They're going to have, you know, she has six months of these treatments and then six months of these treatments. Not only her, but all the girls. 
Now, this word beauty preparations, according to Huey, the commentator, says the root of this Hebrew means to scour and to polish. Your beauty treatments are to scour and to polish. We would call that exfoliation, girls. She's going to be exfoliated and so that she's all the dead skin's gone and she's radiant and shiny and polished from head to toe. In verse 12, each woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulation for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Ladies, what would it be like to have a one-year spa date? Now, at the end of this, it is quite intimidating. You are going to spend a night with the king. And however that goes, whether you're going to be the queen or just going to be a concubine that is put into another house, another house with a lot of other women, you don't really know. But this preparation that they were into to bring them before the king. Verse 15, now when they turn, the turn came for Esther to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised She's so wise. This is the king's custodian of women. He knows the things that the king likes. He's been working for the king for a long time. And rather than saying, I don't like that and I'm not wearing this, he just, she just says, hey, whatever you think the king will like. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, verse 16, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So we started this story in the third year. Now it's at the seventh, so four years have passed. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast. You know, this guy likes to party. And the feast of Esther, they called it. This is, hey, have you been invited to the the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Now here she comes from obscurity, from nothing, a POW, prisoner of war family. She's an orphan. Her mom and dad are gone. She's being raised by her cousin. But Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one. God put down Vashti. Allow, see in those circumstances, and he exalts another. You see, you never know what purpose God has for, for each one of you. God has a plan and a purpose for you. It might be a small part of the big plan, or it might be a large part. It might be a short part that's played, or a long part that's played. You never know, but you can go through every day of your life knowing if you're a child of God, living by faith, that God, you are a part of God's purposes and plans within your your family, within your neighborhood, within your school, within your place of work, at the team, in your church. Wherever you are, God is working in you that you are a part of his purpose and his plan. Little did Esther know how much God was working in all of this, because if you have never heard it before, hear it now, the book of Esther is 10 chapters, and God is never mentioned once. It is the only book, like of this length, that God is not mentioned. You see, in this book, it's as if the Lord is behind the curtain, pulling all the strings to bring it all together, but it's the invisible hand of God. He's never mentioned and yet he's still working. He's never mentioned, yet he is still the director of this entire affair. Sometimes God is not overt in the circumstances in which he's orchestrating in our lives, that we don't see it. Sometimes it's bold, and he's even speaking to us in, uh, in the midst of it, but other times he's, he's still working. He's still working even in your life right now. If you don't hear him or you're not aware of those things, now there's a key moment that Mordecai also comes into play. Not only has Esther now become the queen, but in verse 21 of this chapter, it says, in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hung, hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Hey, Mordecai's just hanging out, and he hears these two 
doorkeepers whispering how they're going to kill the king. It's an assassination plot. And he hears it. They seem serious and earnest about it. So he gets word to Queen Esther. Queen Esther tells uh, King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus has them investigated. It's true. So he hangs them on the gallows. Boom. And it's written into the chronicles of the king. Everything that happens in the king's life is written down like a diary. But he doesn't get any reward. There's no public recognition. That's going to come up later in a very supernatural way. Now, obviously, if we're going to bring this all together, we realize in any scene as a movie's moving through, we have the breakup of a royal marriage. We have the rise of the underdog, a nobody, in Esther, and she's on the throne. But there is a purpose behind this because you see she's in the right place so that when the enemy shows up on the scene, the villain, every great movie book plot has to have a villain. <laughs> Right, you have to have somebody with some little pencil mustache and just, or a <laughs> James Bond always has his twisted little villains in the <laughs> series of his movies. But this guy is by the name of Haman, and he's not only a villain, but he is an archenemy of the Jewish people as far as his ancestry goes back hundreds of years. His name is Haman. As a matter of fact, to this day, if you are ever in Israel during Purim, which is the celebration of this story, because they cast lots in the month of Pur to uh, pick the day in which the Jews are going to be annihilated. It's the closest thing the Jews have to Halloween. They all dress up as characters, but the villain is always Haman. And they, feed, they, they cook special pastries, which are called Haman ears, like we would say elephant ears, like the big pastries, but it's Haman ears. And there's obviously the little girls are Queen Esther and the boys, King Ahasuerus or Mordecai. And then you have the villain Haman. In verse 1 of chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He was so torqued at Mordecai it wasn't enough just to kill him. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. His anger at one man wanted him to kill the entire Jewish race and nationality. It's satanic, it's demonic, but this is who he is. He's a very bad guy. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. So he bribes the king with 10,000 talents of silver to kill all the Jews. The king says, great. And the letters were sent by courier into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children, women, and one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Verse 15, so the king and Haman sat down to drink. They just made a business deal. Let's have a drink. And, but the city of Sushan was perplexed. Now they send the message to all fast horses, to all 27 provinces, all Jews are going to be destroyed because of one interaction between one Jewish man who won't bow because he's Jewish and he always only bows to God and to Haman who was an Agagite, but most believe an ancient relative of the Amalekites that attacked the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt and God swore a perpetual war between the Amalekites and the people of God. 
It's this picture of, hey, there's children of the devil and there's children of God and they are at war. And we see those two things come together here. A child of God in Mordecai who's wanting to be obedient to the Lord, not bowing to a man. And yet here is a child of the devil, this demon-possessed guy that's willing to annihilate an entire group of people. A genocide, a massive genocide. And when this is known in chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had happened... He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. The next verse is for the sake of our time. Esther hears about it. She can't interact with him. She has to send maidens out. She's a queen. She has, uh, she's restricted by her uh, royalty. And they go back and forth, and she tries to give him new clothes. And he's like, no, don't you know what's going on? Verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do, you, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. You see, the king and no one else knew that Esther was Jewish. And because nobody knew she was Jewish, she was not that concerned. But all the other Jews are going to be killed. You see, when you're one step removed from tyranny, you just want to be quiet and make no waves. We've seen that for two years, haven't we? Think about it. That's what we've seen for two years. People have asked me over and over and over, when will people wake up? I said, when they come for them. That's when you wake up, when they come for them. When they come for your children. When they want to put an experimental vaccine into children that has known side effects and a child is not even susceptible to any kind of danger whatsoever to COVID-19, to the original variant, to the Delta variant, to the Omicron variant, they're not in danger. So it's a risk-reward thing. If you're older and you have four to five other health issues, then it's a risk-reward thing. You're older, you have these health problems, and maybe the vaccine will help you not get as sick, <laughs> but it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID or giving COVID to other people. See, we live in a generation now that we have this tyrannical laws, these emergency powers that are declared that we're watching going on up in Canada, that we've been watching in America, that we've been watching around the world, and you're wondering when people are going to stand up and actually speak up. Only when they come for you. Only when they come for your children. And Mordecai right here is calling out Esther. He's like, Esther, you think you're safe in the palace. It will become known that you are Jewish. Become, I'm Jewish, and I'm the relative that raised you. You don't think somebody's going to investigate and figure that out? I'm the one that started this whole debacle by not even bowing down to Haman. So it says in verse 14, for if you, this is the classic, this is the most quoted verse from the book of Esther. If you know no other verse, this is a verse that you put a box around, you underline, you highlight it. If you didn't bring your own Bible and somebody next to you has a Bible, you underline it for them and their Bible. This is the verse, okay? For if you remain completely silent as at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God will bring deliverance. If you remain silent, God's, God, God will bring deliverance another, from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, you're in a key spot, maybe. Maybe you could be the person that blows the lid off as a whistleblower of truth, as a hospital employee that has seen the corruption for the last two years. Or a person that works for the FBI that sees down what they're doing to citizens. When there's real criminals out there, they're actually going after parents. That you're a person that knows things. You're a person that is strategically placed and you've been having a tug of war in your own soul. Like, I hope that somebody else stands up. I hope somebody else brings deliverance. I hope we're rescued from somebody else. You keep waiting for the cavalry to come and save us and save you so you don't have to speak up. But how do you know that you have not been brought to this place in this time in human history to stand up and finally get some courage to have a voice? and to speak, and to stand, and be willing. And this is the thing for Esther. This is not a light thing. Because let me tell you, she knows what he's asking, 
And for her, it could mean death. Look what it, she declares. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days and night or day. My maids and I will fast alike, likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, for the sake of time, I had to jump across the passage that says this. She says, well, Mordecai, you and I know that anybody that goes into the king uninvited, it's one answer, death penalty. You're, you're killed. You do not go into the king's uh, courtroom, if you will, uninvited because he will execute you. Unless when you come in, he sees you and you have such favor, he raises the golden scepter to you. That means you're not going to be executed and you have an audience with the king, even though it's been spontaneous. And you intruded. Your intrusion is welcomed by him, by the golden scepter. She knows this. Mordecai knows this. But Mordecai says, this is such a bad, a terrible situation. You've got to risk it. So she tells everybody, okay, this is what we're going to do. You fast, I'll fast, we're not going to eat anything, we're not going to drink anything. And God's people throughout the biblical history, when there's a crisis, they would rather have God's intervention, they would rather have God's help, they'd rather have God's will than to eat food or to drink water. And here it's for three days. You tell everybody you know, I, my maids and I will not fa- we'll fast and, and for this period of time. But once again, God's not mentioned and prayer is not mentioned. It just says fasting. But the two go together all the way through the scriptures. And this is what she had to come to the conclusion. She was willing to keep silent. Maybe they won't find out I'm Jewish because I can't go to the king. But now she has to get to the place that she counts the cost. And she says, if I perish, I perish. You know, you cannot be courageous and stand up and not pay a price. You may lose everything you have. You may lose your freedom. You may lose your life. You may lose all of your wealth. You may lose all of your friends. You may, lo- may lose everything. But the thing about it, tyranny is that it, it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't just get worn out. It gets, it's like a boa constrictor that every time you know, their, their victim breathes out, they sense that with their nerves and they, they sense tighter so that you slowly are asphyxiated by not being able to breathe. That's what tyranny's like. And Haman is a tyrannical leader that's willing to massacre an entire race of people off the face of the earth. And the only remedy for somebody like that is other people being willing to lose their life, to stand up against them. Mordecai knows that, but only Esther has the ear of the king. Only Esther has had the intimacy to be in bed with the king so that the king really loves her and really has favor for her, he'll listen to her. But for such a time as this, each one of us are in a place, in a location, whether it's small, whether it's big, to be a voice in this age of tyranny where things are shrinking up, our liberties are going out the window. And it says in verse 17, so Mordecai went his way, and did according to all that Esther commanded. That's what you call a cliffhanger. You just push the pause button and to be continued next week. Old school TV style. But the hero of this story is a lady. How many heroes have we seen? Heroic ladies stand up. I think of an Esther, like Simone Gold, a Jewish doctor that just called this a bunch of baloney early on and was, you know, asked to leave her medical group and she stood up and gathered everybody that she could. It was going to cost her, it could cost her her medical license, it could cost her her career and, and had a white coat conviction, convention on the steps of the White House at the beginning of the American Frontline Doctors and started getting together with like-minded people that were calling lies and calling truth what, for what it was during all of this pandemic. And now she's looked at as a hero. At the time, she was a pariah. She was the misinformation, disinformation, this conspiracy theory person. Now we call her a hero. She's willing to lose everything. She had the FBI bust down her door for walking in and giving her speech in the January 6th. She didn't break anything. I mean, the doors were open. She just walked in. 
and read the speech that she had planned on reading at the platform that President Trump was going to speak at, but the schedule got mixed up. I don't know about you, this time in history is a time where villains and heroes are evident. I can't think of anybody in our generation in this two-year window that is more of a villain in all of this than an Anthony Fauci and what he has done to the American people. And Bobby Kennedy with his new book, you know, the, the real Anthony Fauci, I mean, what a courageous thing. And I pray for Bobby for his life and protection. I mean, if he, he's gone suddenly, well, no, that was, that, was, that was a courageous thing. If he perish, he perish. If he loses his career, he loses his career. If he loses everything, he, he's, he's putting it all on the line. And yet how people are just tucked away in their safe little places thinking, I hope somebody else saves me. I hope somebody else rescues me. I hope somebody else has courage. I hope somebody else loses everything they have so I can keep everything that I have. And we want to survive rather than, rather than to stand. All the people throughout the scriptures that we admire, all the people in our lives that we admire are people of conviction that stand up for the right thing in the darkest of times and put it all on the line. And this is the courage and the challenge that Esther's life and story brings to our hearts. May the Lord write it in iron within our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. We pray that you would strengthen us now as we stand for you. We pray that you would build us up, that you give us courage, Lord. We confess that we are afraid. We confess that there's times that we, we know that you've brought us to a certain place to speak up, and we miss that opportunity. Lord, would you help us in these days, these coming days, Lord? May you raise up Daniels and Davids and Esthers, Deborahs, these courageous women, these courageous men. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We pray that you would just strengthen our hearts tonight from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. As we uh, worship the Lord with this closing song, if you need prayer, the prayer team is going to be down in front. They'd love to lay hands on you, anoint you with oil if you need prayer of healing. Don't leave here tonight without having the minister to your hearts. Listen to your, your uh, issues, and they'll pray for one another. Hey, let's worship the Lord with this closing song. <laughs>